0: Well, some of you have heard the line, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it. Because you will mess things up. And it's true that we are, like all other churches, we have sin. We are filled with sinners. We're not perfect. However much we, we put on a good front, I'd say uh, a lot of you clean up real good. If you were here at the wedding yesterday, you saw our best. Uh, a lot of us uh, looks look uh, from the outward appearance blameless, gracious, smiling. But then you dig a little little deeper. You see that it's a community, even a community like this, that will let you down. Now I say that not as an excuse, but as a a point that needs to be stressed, that often is overlooked. Because if you come to the church to find a perfect community, then you will grow cynical. I know some of you may be at that point right now. You've been disillusioned about the church. Perhaps you're, you're suspicious. Left and right you see examples of hypocrisy and corruption whenever someone gets up to speak about God. Maybe you ask, what gives that person the right to to speak for God? What allows this person to actually spend his time proclaiming a message that I should consider divine? And it's this disillusionment that has driven many away from the church. Many to chart their own course into an individual and private, personal faith. They've been let down by organized religion, so they turn inward. All of that strangely leads us to this passage. For there has been this not-so-subtle theme that's been working all the way through 1 Samuel, and now it comes to the head right at the beginning of 2 Samuel. The king is not good. The Lord's anointed is faithless. And what are we supposed to think about that? You know, our passage is going to say some surprising things. Some things that I think, if we draw conclusions from it, few of us would expect. And many of us might be troubled by. It. But at the heart of it, it is good news. A good news that I think will draw you closer to Christ, not push you away from him. So with that, let's come back to this text and let's ask God to bless our reading of it. Will you pray with me? My Lord, we do pray that you will be with us in this word that um, speaks your truth. We pray that you will be good to your promise as we know you will be, that you will not let this word return void. Bless us now as we study it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 2 Samuel uh, picks up right where 1 Samuel left off. And it does so because if we really pay attention, we will see that this is one book. All the signs are there. The literary structure, the style, the plot. It should not be divided into two. But if that's the case, if this is really just one extended book, then some questions immediately come to mind. Most specifically, why is the account of Saul's death so different in 2 Samuel chapter 1 than it is in the closing chapter of 1 Samuel? And We didn't read it this morning, but at the end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31, we see a very different account of the death of Israel's first king, Saul. There it recounts a battle where Saul is clearly losing to the Philistines. And in despair from all sides, he even turns to his armor bearer and says, take my life. The armor bearer, not willing to go through with that instruction either for cowardice or his own despair, turns the knife on himself and commits suicide, leaving Saul alone. And Saul, not wanting the Philistines to take him and dishonor him, falls on his own sword. And that ends that chapter in 1 Samuel. But now, in 2 Samuel, we begin a different account. This one by a messenger, an Amalekite, coming into the court of David and saying that the similarities were the same. There was a battle he was losing, and Saul cried out for someone to kill him. But now, the Amalekite says, no, no, it was me. I was the one who did it. He says in verse 10, I stood beside him and I killed him." Now before we say, Aha! I found a difference in the Bible. We finally undermined the, the sacred text. Let's, let's take a moment and try to ask why these differences might be there. But the ancient writers were not ignorant. I hope that we've discovered, at least in the book of 1 Samuel, that the author, whoever was writing this, Uh, was uh, uh, highly talented and artistic in the way he crafted his narrative. This is sophistication of storytelling at its best. So let's do better than just assume that it was sloppiness. Now, what should we do when these accounts are different? But first, I think we should notice that they're told from different perspectives and different characters. The account in... 1 Samuel 31 is told by the narrator. So far we've understood this as the omniscient narrator, the one who, who is able to explain the details of the story. And we believe that this narrator was inspired by God as he gives us God's word so that we understand his perspective to be good. But the account we have here in 2 Samuel doesn't come from the narrator. In fact, it comes from an Amalekite one who has entered into this scene. But the question then would be, what is his motive? Why does he do this? And did he know that it was going to end up so poorly for him? I think that is where the tension of this story lies. And the dramatic tension we should feel as we hear that the, the Amalekite clearly doesn't think that David is going to kill him because of this report. I suspect that the Amalekite, far from making David mad, thinks that this is going to be cause for rejoicing. And I think most readers following along this story would probably expect the same thing from the, uh, that this Amalekite expects. Ding-dong, the witch is dead. Saul is gone. He's been wicked almost through the whole of 1 Samuel, and good riddance for him. We want to think that this is a cause for rejoicing. Saul has been mercilessly pursuing David for years. The death of Saul would have meant the first opportunity for David, who has been on the run throughout this account, to take a breath. David has been under stress and duress, narrowly escaping Saul's spear, it seems like, at every turn. He's been living on the run. And now his enemy is gone. Further, as we read this story, we know David is one of the good guys. He's the guy that we should be rooting for. And he's the logical choice to be the next king. He's a war hero. He's the one that slew the enemy of all enemies, Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. Women love him. Men want to be him. There are songs that are sung all about him. David uh, slew his ten thousands. Even the priests and the prophets of God, they left Saul and they joined up with David. Surely David is going to be excited here. Jonathan, Saul's son, has died also in the battle. So this Amalekite, by announcing that, uh, of this death, is really claiming that the path is clear. The path to the throne. It says that he now brings the crown of Saul and all the trinkets of, of royalty to David. He's a crown, he's a kingmaker, giving Saul all the rights and privileges. And Surely David is going to reward this guy the scene that is set in 1 Samuel 31 describes that a day after the battle, many came out to plunder the bodies of those who had fallen. And we could imagine that this Amalekite, as he says here, who had um, just so happened to stumble across this battlefield, we could imagine him looking through uh, for plunder, trying to find any, any bit of treasure he can from the dead bodies, and then stumbling across King Saul and thinking, I have hit a cold mine. Picking up these items and then dashing off to David's court. Just beforehand, throwing on some, some dirt on his head and tearing some clothes to make it look like, you know, the appropriate thing of mourning. And then just about as he's coming in there, he says, well, wait a second, rather than just give him the news, why don't I tell him I was the one that did this act? Surely, surely he would see me then as the hero. I would be the one who slew his enemy. I'm the one that enabled him to prosper. And so the Amalekite comes, putting the crown in front of David, and like a doorman holding out his hand for a tip, you could just imagine him saying, There you go, David. <clears throat> Anytime you want to bring the rewards on. And we read this, I think, follow along with the Amalekites. I think we can get lulled into that same expectation. Because we, too, have rooted for David. We've wanted this story to transition off from Saul a long time ago. Saul has been wicked and faithless. We've longed for the day when the story would move on to the good guy. You know, oftentimes we read Old Testament narratives and we say, okay, how can I be like this person? And we read Saul and we're like, well, I know I can't be like him, so let's get on to the one I can be like, David. It's not a good way to read scripture. And it's not a good way to understand what the narrator is working at here. Second Samuel, we would expect, begin with the celebratory changing of the guard. Oh, sure, maybe you'd say a nice uh, few words about Saul. Poor Saul, was, is, he's dead now. Let's not speak ill of the dead. But verses 11 through 16, if we're reading it that way, will hit us between the eyes and shock us. Why does David grieve like this? Why does he respond to this guy with such what seems like anger, and, and executes him, calls for his execution right there. Now, it would be different if we could rationalize it. Maybe maybe it was because Dave, because this guy was an Amalekite. Now, Amalekites have a very interesting history in the, with the people of God. The Amalekites were the first enemies of God's people as they were brought out of the Exodus. In fact, they were so wicked that they started to attack God's people from the from the rear as they were trying to escape Egypt. And they got such a bad name that God said that they should be wiped out, that eventually God would call on his people to destroy them utterly. And if you remember 1 Samuel 15, that was the charge to Saul when he was to fight the Amalekites, to wipe them out utterly. But Saul in his disobedience failed. And so it was sadly appropriate that it's an Amalekite who claims to have killed him. And it's also fitting that David is the one who does what Saul didn't do and kills the Amalekite. But that's not the reason that David gives for this execution. It's not the reason he gives for his grief. David says in verse 14, how is it that you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. He concludes saying, blood is on your head because you said that you had killed the Lord's anointed. Whether this guy actually killed the Amalekite or not, I wager we as readers, as well as this Amalekite, don't get the significance of what David is saying here the categories that he is working with? What did it mean for Saul to be the Lord's anointed? And do we function with categories like this? I mean, sometimes when we think about God and his interactions, either with us or with characters in the Bible, we think that he just sort of pops up here, and then he pops up there like he's some leprechaun, appearing whenever he wants to just talk to individuals. But that's that's not how God reveals himself. What we see in the Old Testament is God very carefully setting up institutions. He builds an organization, very intentionally crafting it with certain roles. He creates the role of prophet and of priest and of king. And these roles play a central piece in the life of, of the people of God. Each one of them is anointed with oil. And in that, they were representing the fact that these offices were agents of God. God did not need to be present with them in a way that he could reveal himself personally or or visibly. He could be present with them working through these agents. The prophet would bring God's word. He was charged to do this, that he would give the promises, remind the, prom- remind the people of the promises that God had made and call them out when they were disobeying or wandering from these promises. And a prophet needed to stay with the word of God. Once the prophet moves off to his own words or proclaims his own agenda, the penalty was clear. He needed to be stoned. The priest, too, would dramatically portray God. He would portray God's response to sin. And so the priest was bloody much of the time as he was putting to death animal after animal, saying the response to God is sin. To uh, to sin is death. And death of a substitute. There was atonement and forgiveness. Now, The king also had a role. The king's role here was not just head of state, but he was a deliverer. He was the one charged to lead God's people away from their enemies. One who would bring them from oppression into peace. Saul was that man. Saul filled this role as a leader and deliverer. He was the one who was anointed. But the clearest objection to this is his sin. I mean, didn't Saul disqualify himself from this office? Wasn't he proven to be unworthy of this? I mean, Saul's reign was a mess. I mean, if you look at what he did, you could just sort of rattle off his downfall. It started when he disobeyed the prophet Samuel and gave an unlawful sacrifice. And then, a few chapters later, he he fails to obey God's command with the Amalekites. And then, uh, almost as if it's going down a steep uh, decline, things just ultimately unravel for Saul. He takes 85 unarmed priests at the city of Nob, and he slaughters them. He makes it clear throughout the rest of 1 Samuel that he is... Paranoid and obsessive about David, wanting to destroy him at almost every turn. Saul proves to be wicked and petty and godless in many of the accounts that we've looked at. And God seems to have already made it clear that his line won't succeed. In fact, he says that he will be removed from from the kingship. And even in chapter 28, we see a message that he will not survive. This very battle. So, why doesn't David disqualify him? Why doesn't David uh, dethrone Saul? Why does David still treat Saul as if he is the anointed one? You see, that's the real punch of this story. David is able to see with eyes of faith where everyone else is seeing in worldly terms. David is able to understand what's going on and what has been going on in the life of Israel. He views the death of Saul not in terms of his own success, not in terms of what advantage this will provide him as he gets to ascend to some higher role. David sees the death of Saul in the overall plan of God. And for this, it means that the the anointed of God, God's designed deliverer, has died. You see, he's the Lord's anointed. And David saw that the office was bigger than the man. The office represented God's promise. God's promise to deliver him. This is how David viewed life. You see, he walked by faith. And faith not in whatever his imagination would produce, but faith in what God's covenant word would tell him. And he, he lived life as if that were true, because it was. Now, there are two other occasions when this same walking by faith occurred. We saw it in chapter 24 and chapter 26 of 1 Samuel. Times in which it seemed, in worldly eyes, that, uh, that God had delivered Saul into David's hands. But at each time, what did David do? right at the point where he could take Saul's life and and ascend to the throne himself, he pulled back the spear. He didn't kill him. Each time he said, Lord forbid that I should do this to the Lord's anointed. You see, David was able to look past the man and see the office. He was able to respect and revere the office of the anointed one. Even, even when occupied by somebody who was faithless. Even when occupied by somebody who was a personal threat to him. The anointed here was significant. He was, a, he was much more than a leader of a nation. And this is just not a, a nation that happened to be religious. I mean, this is the whole point of First and 2 Samuel. That Israel was not supposed to just be like every other nation. And this king was not supposed to be a king like every other king. You know, we, we run into lots of trouble when we start reading America into Israel and Israel's life. This is not just a religious nation. This was a nation that was tied to the promises of God. The desire to be a normal nation is what Israel got into trouble for when they called for a king no saul was a visible sign of the covenant his presence there was that god was good was, god was going to be faithful to his covenant his victories were god's victories so what does it mean when he's defeated what does it mean that the anointed one dies The point is that it was God's prerogative always to remove Saul. Even anointed David. Now, David had been anointed in 1 Samuel, but it was a private anointing. The day would still come. In fact, it would be in the next chapter in 2 Samuel before he gets his public anointing. But until that time, he trusted that God would be the one to make that call. All others who attack the anointed one were enemies of God. And the message was clear to David. When you strike the anointed, you strike God's deliverer. The Amalekites' act was not a blessing to Saul, I mean to, to David. The Amalekites' act wasn't going to prosper David in his mind. It was an attack on God's people, because it was an attack on God. David understands here what we all need to understand when reading the Bible. God always uses flawed people. He always does. Every king in Israel was unqualified for that office. Even David will prove this in 2 Samuel. So far, he's looked pretty good. But in 2 Samuel, it will show time after again that his own sin, whether it be sexual sin or sin in battle, will lead to David's downfall and, in fact, the downfall of Israel as they wind up in exile and punishment from God. In the same way, every priest is sinful. I mean, that's one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews. Is that, yes, the priests were serving there to provide a sacrifice for the sins of the people, but they themselves needed atonement. Every priest that God had put into office himself was a sinner. But you see, the sins of the people did not compromise God's faithfulness. Again and again, God uses flawed people to serve in these offices. David weeps. David weeps here. He grieves because the anointed is dead. He wept because it wasn't just Saul and Saul's sin that brought about this death. but It was all of Israel's sin reflected onto and carried by Saul. I mean, that's really been the story here. Yes, Saul has been bad, but Saul has just been a mirror to the wickedness of Israel. He is the representative. He is like his people. And his wickedness and downfall and faithfulness are just representative of what the people have been doing. And so his death there brings David into this crisis to say, Has God left us? Have we gotten that bad? And it won't be until 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God makes this promise to the Davidic line that says, no, I will always be faithful. And I will always use a king. All this is part of this message. All the kings of Israel will bring their own sin into the equation. They are flawed. And yet God will still use them as sufficient and effective in that time. Just as God used sacrifices at that time and the covenant at that time, he used the ordinances at the time and made them effective to the Old Testament church because the Spirit of God was at work connecting them to Christ. It was Jesus there, yes, present in those people through what God had set up The kingship, when it remained there, was a sign of blessing to the people. God doesn't abolish it because of our failures. He keeps it going. And he keeps it hanging out there as a sign for the Old Testament people to say, wait, wait, there's still one to come. There will be another anointed. And there was another anointed. There was another anointed who would come and like like Saul, bear the sins of his people. But unlike Saul, he himself did not have sin. There was another anointed who would come, who would be handed over and put to death. As we heard in Acts 4, it's this Jesus, the anointed one, who would come and would be put to death at the hands of God's enemies. But it is in that death that he becomes the great anointed king who delivers his people out of the ultimate enemy. For he defeats death in that very place and rises to life. You see, in the story of Saul, there was no Easter. And it was hanging out there until Good Friday when the other anointed comes. One who would see an Easter and lead all of his people in that expectation of resurrection. The New Testament understood this implicitly. When they call Jesus Christ, that that word is, in Greek, meaning of anointed. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. Jesus, the Christ, was the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate anointed king. And so David could see this, you see, as a faithful fulfillment of all these promises. He could differentiate between the flawed king and the anointed office. And he never loses the vision. He never loses that vision of Christ, even through Saul. And so what's this left for us? Can you see? Can you see the connection here? For God never abandons office. He never never abandons his plan to anoint and employs his people to continue to be sufficient and effective. If you paid attention to that Acts 4 reading, you heard the apostles at the time talking about opposition to Christ and how they put to, to death the Anointed One, but also how quickly it turned to the Holy Spirit now residing in them as they faced opposition. They do it brilliantly, but almost like they were drinking in scripture and understood that this is how God works. I know this is a strange concept to modern ears. We've been instilled that same spirituality that that wants to see God just popping up here and there. We're skeptical of any connection between what we have here on earth and what is represented in heaven. I actually think our limitation is in our understanding of the providence of God. For I I know many of us see the providence of God in almost everything that happens. We see it in the encounter we have uh, as we bump into somebody across the street. We we read in coincidences and we we see significance of of God actually communicating with us in in an email we get or or something we see on television. We see God's providence in almost every nook and cranny of life except in things that have institution, organization, or, or represent Christ. Daryl Hart puts it this way. Modern society regards ritual, symbol, hierarchy, and form as unreal at best and fake at worst. Gone is any conception that the forms and shapes of temporal existence represent transcendent reality. That's something David saw implicitly because he walked by faith in the covenant. That what he saw was not just mere men doing this political thing that was going to wind up with him either being in power or the other side being in power. He saw God being good to his word and working through the instances of human people in this office. Now, the skeptics among you are sitting back there, especially the theologically savvy ones, and saying, wait a second. Isn't this what the whole Protestant Reformation undid? I mean, we are celebrating the 500th anniversary this very Sunday of the Protestant Reformation. Didn't they make the move to get rid of office? Misunderstanding? Well, for those of you who are not aware of what the Protestant Reformation is, in simplest terms, it was just a great revival. It was a revival, one of the greatest revivals in history, of God's Spirit bringing conversion to, to people. But it was also a challenge to the corruption that was in the church at the time. And one of the main critiques of those challenging was to say that the priests and the bishops were standing in the place of Christ. Christ. They were inserting themselves as intermediaries between God's people and Christ. The kids, could you imagine being in class throughout the whole year, and then in the last, say, quarter, a substitute comes in and then teaches something completely different? You're going to be freaking out about, well, what's going to be on the exam? What am I going to do? It would be very confusing. The Reformers argued the biblical concept of the priesthood of all believers, saying that you could have access to God unmediated. The church is not a substitute for Christ. It cannot be. It must not be. Amen. But that did not mean that God rejected the concept of office. If that were so, then Christ's ascension would leave us as orphans we would be alone without any access to him. But that's not what it says in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 says that God, when he went on high, gave gifts to men. And it wasn't like Santa Claus dropping presents, gift-wrapped presents down. The gifts that are listed right there in Ephesians are the apostles and the teachers and the pastors for the building up of the body of Christ. These gifts were Christ acting in offices. He promised not to be replaced by the church, but to be present in and through his people. That quote from your bulletin puts it so well from from Tom Torrance. He says, The ordained ministry is in no sense an extension of the priestly ministry of Christ or prolongation of his vicarious work, We do not displace Christ. Rather, we are displaced. We shrink so that he might become greater. Man, let that sink in. That's wonderfully good news. That's very good news for all who are exhausted from man-made religion. If week after week you are tired of leaders who make religion about themselves... And this is a breath of fresh air. I mean, what a nightmare it would be that if God's presence was was, um, barred from you by humans. What a nightmare it would be that if you longed for forgiveness of sins, you longed for grace, and you had to rely on a sinner to dole out any type of blessing to you. But I want this to be clear. This is not just a problem for those who have a high view of the church and a a high view of priesthood. This is a problem for those who don't have any view of office. Rejecting the concept of ordained office doesn't allow a church to become closer to Christ. It actually gets less Christ. You see, you only get Saul, you never get the anointed office. You only get David, you actually don't get God's covenant promises to work through. Rather than a pope standing between you and, and Christ, you now have popular popes. You now get the people who will gather behind anybody who can say something winsomely or can be witty and clever or can promise you things. You only get humans. Now, Recovering the idea of office allows Christ to come to the forefront and encourages me to shrink out of you. We need to recover this idea. I do not carry any authority outside of the promises of God. I myself cannot speak words that Christ doesn't speak. And once I start spouting my own advice, once I start giving my opinion about how you should live your life, please run away. I won't be offended. I will congratulate you on making a wise move. I am not that smart. If you were here spending 40 minutes a week listening to me, I would have real questions about your choices in life. I don't stand up here spouting age-old wisdom that I've earned in my 42 years of life. I spout Christ. We're in a denomination that when I start moving from that into some other teaching will stop me. And say, no, don't listen to what he's saying now. We have accountability. But this is important. But we also have this understanding that Christ is active and present. So you can hear words when I'm in office. as the words of Christ. So that way it doesn't matter if it's Craig or Preston or myself up here. You know that Christ is acting. This is important for those who have been disillusioned about the church. You see, the sins of the people constantly get in the way. For those of you who are cynical, you've looked at the hypocrisy, and it's tempting to just go on your own way. You hear the church spouting forgiveness and love, but maybe you have been let down. Maybe you're to the point where you you can't trust the church now, if that's been your experience, I want to say there really is no excuse. We do apologize. You should experience love here. But even if you have been let down, this does not nullify God's presence. It does not invalidate Christ's ability to use flawed people. Look, I, I love you all. And I think you're wonderful, kind people. You know I'm setting you up, right? Some of the most gracious people... The more I get, the more you're going to be in trouble. Some of the most gracious people that I've met are in this room. But if you come here looking for better humans, you will quickly grow cynical about this group. But how sad if you come here only looking for better humans. Come here looking for God. And you will find him Come here looking for Christ, and he will be present and active, working on all of us. You can trust that there will be grace here, not because we're gracious. I mean, I hope we're gracious because of a response of the Spirit in work in us. But come, not find grace not because we're gracious, because God has chosen this place to be present. This is the vision that David had. He didn't see life in the ins and outs of it, and in wealth and power and the things that would benefit him. He saw God working according to his word and his covenant. And so we come to this table now. Let us not be deceived. Let us not think that there's a solid wall between the things of this earth and the things in heaven. For God has penetrated. He's come now and interrupted our humanity with his divine power of salvation. Let us walk by faith, knowing that Christ has even designed these things to bless us. Let's pray.